your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope. Brought to you by the Sensory Learning Center with host and mother of a recovering child with autism, Betsy Hicks. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Betsy and her guests illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Betsy Hicks. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope. A wonderful woman is my guest today. It's um, Susan Owens, who we've all loved through the Dan think tanks and um, all that she's contributed to all of the Dan conferences and her research. Uh, Aside from a fabulous researcher, she's a wonderful person. She is a graduate of Vanderbilt University, and since completing her master's degree at the University of Texas in Dallas in interdisciplinary studies, Mrs. Owens has lectured widely in the United States and internationally while integrating her work with fellow members of the Defeat Autism Now, the Dan Think Tank run by the Autism Research Institute. For 11 years, finding the sulfur system almost universally disrupted in autism, she focused her efforts on studying how the sulfur system is regulated normally, how it interacts with other biological systems, how it matures, and how it affects postnatal neurodevelopment. In this past year, she began studying a new area that integrates with the sulfur system after learning how gut inflammation, poor fat digestion, and leaky gut, which are conditions present in most of, the, of those with autism, had been found by scientists to lead to excess absorption of a simple but powerful and toxic compound found in plant foods called oxalate. Uh, a small pilot study confirmed oxalate to be an issue in autism, and that began the Autism Oxalate Project, where Mrs. Owens pioneered the use of the low-oxalate diet in autism. To everyone's surprise, the low-oxalate diet not only addressed pain and mortality issues in the gastrointestinal tract that had not been responded to previous therapy, also leading to the improvements in urinary areas, but it also led to rapid improvements in gross motor, fine motor, speech, condition, growth, and many other areas. The research will continue to expand with help she is getting from her new affiliation with the Hudson Hudson Science Research Institute and with continuing help from other members of the FASEB Oxalate Research Community. Thank you, Susan, for joining us today. I'm really happy to be here. What percentage of people do you feel have trouble with oxalate? Well, that's that's a very difficult question. Uh, You know, before the oxalate research community was pretty much thinking that the only people who had oxalate issues were those who had uh, kidney disorders that were associated with oxalates. And uh, there was a condition called enteric hyperoxaluria where the gut was all inflamed and because of the inflammation they knew that um, oxalates were being absorbed from the diet and that they were getting to the kidneys and they were damaging damaging the kidneys. Mm-hmm. But the big issue there was that there, um, you know, other research that has been done in that community has shown that people who get 
kidney disease are missing some um, regulatory molecules that help protect the kidneys themselves from oxalates. So it may be that there's a whole population of people who have the proper protection in the kidneys from oxalates, but who don't have the proper protection in the gastrointestinal tract from oxalates. So they never really asked the question of, you know, were the oxalates themselves what was contributing to what was making the gastrointestinal tract inflamed. And so that was what was so shocking and so... Uh, radical about our findings when we began uh, to have some children with autism going on the low oxalate diet is that their GI problems were clearing up. And so what was being considered the cause was actually, um, you know, part of the problem or, or part of the consequences that were there because um, of the the damage from these oxalates. And oxalates basically like to find damaged tissue. And if that damaged tissue is already the gut, then it's likely to just further exacerbate the irritation in the gut and maybe keep the gut from healing. So this is not, in contrast, you know, uh, Dr. Wakefield, of course, has talked about his hypothesis that um, for a lot of the kids, they have this history of regression after the MMR. And, you know, perhaps in that group, um, you know, that have these high titers to to measles virus that that they're finding actually in the gut tissue, that might have been the originator of the injury. But because you're eating oxalates, the oxalates could be further... uh, keeping that tissue damaged. Is there a test to know who can be helped by this diet? Not really. Um, the big scientific question, which is going to take, you know, a lot of um, money sure. <laughs> and a lot of work of some scientists to address, is that the sulfur problems that we find in autism may actually change the way that oxalate is trafficked in the body, including in the intestines, including in the kidneys, including in the brain, including, you know, across the blood-brain barrier. And because that is a situation that's, um, I wouldn't say totally unique to autism, Mm -hmm. but it's a definite, you know, part of autism, that this may explain why... um, we may not get the same levels of oxalate in the urine that someone with the same GI problems and the same absorption of oxalates would get um, who didn't have the sulfur problems. So I know people are listening right now and they're interested to know, okay, I, I, maybe they've heard of the low oxalate diet, maybe, um, and, or they're making a lot of sense out of what you're saying now. But the big question is, what is a low oxalate diet? What what foods are we looking at as being considered high in oxalate? Well, a very simple answer is uh, it's plants. Okay. <laughs> um, because uh, oxalate is used by plants to store calcium, just like our bones in our bodies uh, stash away calcium that you know can be called upon when our bodies need more calcium or when we get a lot of calcium, we can store the calcium away in our bones. And so plants do the same thing 
only they use oxalate to store it away in these little um, uh, cells called idioblasts. And then they also have um, a use for making oxalate crystals that um, they catch light and the way they are, uh, you know, pushing the, the, the light around inside the the cells is helping with photosynthesis. So there are reasons that oxalates are really a plant issue. So you don't have to really worry about oxalates that are in food or that are in, I mean, in meat or in dairy because, uh, you know, animals don't have that much oxalate in their systems. And um, but as far as which plants, it's not you know it's not that you have to cut out everything that's um, you know that grows and doesn't say moo. Um, the um, different plants have different levels of oxalate in them, and so um, so we have lists. And th- there's really not a whole lot of rhyme or reason to some of. Um, you know, which foods are and which foods aren't, except that um, they are, the oxalates are very concentrated in nuts and very concentrated in seeds, and they tend to be concentrated in a lot of uh, green leafy vegetables. Um, it also changes because of the way that they're cultivated. So they found that Foods that are cultivated in cold conditions have lower oxalates than foods that are are grown in hot conditions. And so we don't know exactly. You know, it could be that if you got some food that was um, raised in one state versus the same food raised in another state, it would actually have a different oxalate content. So it's not a very exact science in that sense. Sure. Um, but they're general principles that we can follow, and, and the, the really, really high oxalate foods are things like spinach and Swiss chard, um, uh, all the nuts like peanuts and uh, pecans and almonds and soy. Um, and uh, so what we recommend is to... Uh, you know, get on the internet, and you can put in low oxalate diet, uh, and you can get a lot of websites. And we're uh, beginning to construct a website called lowoxalate.com, but right now the only thing that's there is the menu. Okay. But hopefully within the next few weeks we're going to get most of this information on there where it can be accessible. I Something that is interesting to me is, the, especially with the soy, I'm 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 very anti-soy to begin with. Uh-huh. Is is it at all possible that when people see these huge improvements, it has to do with the fact that soy and nuts in general, are, their digestive systems just cannot handle it, or is the reason their digestive systems cannot handle it because of the oxalate issues, or can it be because of digestive enzymes? In other words, is, it, is there many contributing factors to why specific foods on this diet may be a problem? Well, I think so, but I, I do need to say that um, oxalate is not something that's going to be ha- helped by a digestive enzyme. Mm-hmm. So you can't you can't that's interesting. Okay. digest it away. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, it, I wish it were that simple, but right. um, there there is um, our systems are 
beautifully designed. And one of the the ways that um, nature takes care of oxalates that are in the diet normally is uh, that there are some bacteria that are supposed to be in the gut that actually can metabolize oxalates. And among those are lactobacillus acidophilus, you know, that people are taking because they're thinking it's, you know, dealing with yeast. And maybe some of the benefits that we're seeing from that therapy is actually because the lactobacillus is being um, um, helpful in getting rid of the oxalates. Right, and and I know that Soybean uh, protease inhibitor contributes to a lot of the digestive problems. We're, we're gonna, we have so much more to talk about. We're here with Susan Owens um, and talking about the low oxalate diet. Following shortly will be uh, Carlene Banks, a mother who has had her child on this diet. Um, don't go away. We'll be right back. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. We had a wonderful experience in our trip to the Sensory Learning Institute. And the main issue, to sum everything up, is that we went there with a child who was out of control and hyper, who had severe sensory issues and autistic tendencies. And we brought home a child who was vastly different. We brought home a child who plays with me and talks to me and looks in my eyes and tells me he loves me. The goal and focus of the sensory learning program is to enable the central nervous system to better process sensory information by simultaneously stimulating visual, auditory, and vestibular systems with light, sound, and motion. By challenging these three sensory systems to work together and adapt to multi-sensory input, this intervention often improves speech, perception, understanding, social interaction, coordinated movement, and the ability to learn. We invite all parents interested in sensory learning program for a child to complete the confidential assessment on our website at www.sensorylearning.com. To create a kind and gentle world, a change in thought patterns and beliefs, individually and collectively, is needed. Join Suze Casey, developer of Belief Repattering, and her guest as they explore questions and conversations that push the boundaries and engage with you in the process of being who we really are and creating what we really want in our lives. What do you want instead? Invites you to join the conversation every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. What do you want instead? Supports you in honoring and accepting yourself and making the decisions that create the lifestyle you desire and deserve. Hi, this is Mark Victor Hansen. You know me for Chicken Soup for the Soul, the One Minute Millionaire, and Cracking the Millionaire Code. And what I want you to know is that if you want to have rip-roaringly good health, listen to Health Crusades by my friend John Farley. Tune in to Health Crusades with John Farley every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, only on Voice America Health and Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Betsy Hicks. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program, here's Betsy. Hello, and thank you for rejoining us. I have Susan Owens here with me today talking about the low-oxalate diet. And we've just been talking a little bit about the foods that are high in levels on the diet, um, but basically the plant-type things, the spinaches, the Swiss chard, um, the soy, and the nuts. But um, 
Susan, you were just starting to talk about probiotics, and I think that this is definitely an important piece. And Can we talk more about that? Yes. Um, well, what, what the um, scientists have found recently is that um, there is a, a protective mechanism in the body for getting rid of um, excess oxalate. Our, our bodies actually make oxalate. And under certain conditions with, you know, certain genetic defects or with certain vitamin deficiencies, um, our bodies make excess oxalate. And so our systems have a way to get rid of this excess oxalate that's in the blood. And it has two different places it will send it. And one is the kidney and the other is the gastrointestinal tract. Now it makes beautiful sense that it would send it to the gastro- gastrointestinal tract because in the gastrointestinal tract, we are colonized with these bacteria that like to eat oxalate and turn it into something else. But the problem is these are all organisms that are very sensitive to being killed by antibiotics. Mm. And so there, there's been a lot of research done on a particular um, anaerobe called Oxalobacter formigenes, and there's a huge project going on trying to figure out how to make a probiotic of that anaerobe. But it's the, pro- the problem is it's anaerobic. So, you know, to get it to survive so that they can give it to us is, is very challenging. And um, But they also found that some other uh, bacteria like lactobacillus and bifidus, um, that these also can break down oxalates. However, they can't handle huge amounts of oxalate. And what will happen is if you get too much oxalate, it will actually kill the organism. And so this may be the answer that has been asked for so long is why is there a set of kids with autism that no matter how much of this stuff you give them, when you do stool samples to see if the lactobacillus is there, it's disappeared. That so maybe that it's actually being killed by the oxalate that is in the diet or that is being secreted into the gut from the rest of the body. What if they just simply don't have enough, you know, bulgarum or stuff to hold on to it? I mean, could it be that they're just not able to grow it within their own intestine? Well, right. There's an environment there, and it's just like you know, we we like our environment to be a certain way. The bacteria like the environment to be a certain way, and um, I've spent a lot of ta- time talking to Sid Feingold, who is one of the fathers of the whole microbiology field. And it is astonishing how much we don't know about um, this inner territory of ours. You know, we talk about space explore- exploration or going down to the bottom of the sea, but actually our GI tract is very un- unfathomed. And, and the reason it's not, we don't know very much about it, is that it is a community. And when you take one thing out of a community, like if you took you and put you in solitary confinement and expected you to act normal, you wouldn't because it's not a normal environment and you're not going to act like yourself. Well, similarly, if we don't know the proper things that are in that environment that keep a a, uh, microbe happy, we can't recreate that situation outside of the body so that we can study it. And so the vast amount of what's inside the GI tract, we do not understand. 
And, you know, one by one, different scientists are finding species like this oxalobacter um, that have important roles in, in our biology, but which we have been kind of killing willy-nilly by overuse of antibiotics. Let's talk more about the GI, and let's talk about, you make some comparisons to celiac disease. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about those comparisons, how, how you compare this low, the, the oxalate problem with celiac? Yes, well, um, the big issue there is, is the leaky gut. And I'm sure people have heard that term used a lot, and and they may have been a little bit confused about what it meant. And it means something very specific. Um, Our gastrointestinal cells um, are what they call polarized cells. They're not the same on both sides. The side that faces the, you know, inside of the tube that is your GI tract have these um, villi that are, you know, this have this very absorptive surface on them. And that's called the apical side. And then you have on the other side, which is called the basolateral side, you have a very different kind of surface and they're very different molecules that are on that surface and they do very different jobs. So you have one set of molecules and chemistry that is working on one side of the cell, which is where the food is, and you have a different set that's working on the blood side. And so in order to keep those separated, there's these um, zippers, basically, that zip all the way around the cell that are called the tight junction. And these are very carefully regulated, and there's you know all kinds of molecules that the scientists have studied to know how and when uh, that tight junction can loosen up. And uh, there was a discovery that was made in 2000 that there was this molecule called zonulin, which uh, when it's elevated, it will cause that tight junction to open up. And they found out that when you are exposed to wheat, if you you know, are someone who has a sensitivity to wheat, that it will open up that junction. And then... All of a sudden, instead of um, it being a closed system where the only thing that gets through to the blood side is going through the cell, instead now you have stuff that can travel around the cell, and it can be bigger molecules than you know will get through the other way, and it lacks regulation because it's just like an open door, you know. It, um, you know, when the dam breaks, water just goes everywhere. And so this is kind of like the dam opening, except it's just the space that's between cells. And there's also a lot of research that has been done looking at what calcium does there because there there's some molecules that are on, you know, each cell facing where they join together. And if it doesn't have calcium to hold together uh, the, the molecule from one cell to the one on its neighboring cell, then you also create a gap where you can have things that are going through. And then once you have that happening, um, it can disrupt um, the chemistry and end up um, making you lose this coating. There's a coating on the outside of these villi called the glycocalyx, and it's a thick kind of mucousy type stuff. 
Mm-hmm. And in that uh, environment, they're actually the enzymes that help digest your food, and they are held in the right conformation by those molecules that are in the glycocalyx. And, you know, included in that is these disaccharides that are um, the enzymes that are not working right when you have to go on the SCD diet. And so what the scientists found was when that glycocalyx became injured, um, and it's somehow in this whole process of, you know, being exposed to the zonulin and what happens with calcium, that it also injures the glycocalyx. And then when that surface uh, is is, uh, lost, then the villi start to be vulnerable, and that's when you can start getting your autoimmune things going on if you have the genetics that will lead you to that kind of problem. But everything in front of that is something that may happen to all of us and it may not be that you have to have celiac disease in order for those other processes to be going on. You could have the injury to the glycocalyx without having celiac disease. And there's a lot of literature showing that um, once that glycocalyx is injured, then there are bacteria that are usually supposed to be in in the colon that sneak up into the small intestine and start colonizing there, and it's not their normal environment. And so that part of, you know, your biology is not really designed to cope with the stuff that they put out. And so that itself is going to be irritating the gut. And so, you know, it's, it, you just kind of get in these uh, cycles of problems that won't go away because they all sort of feed on each other. And are we looking at a myriad of causes of this? I mean, are we looking at environmental toxins, heavy metals, viruses, bacteria, a lot of things that are causing this to go into fruition? Well, you know, there's precious little research to really inform us on that. Um, For instance, this heavy metal, you know, the autism community has been very focused on that in the last few years, but the people who study that uh, you know, don't really study it in the context of an awful lot of other biology. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, some pe- people have wondered how uh, use of certain chelating agents would relate to what's going on with oxalate. Well, we don't know because the people who have studied chelating agents have just assumed that they have one biological role. Right. I agree with you 100%, yes. Yes, and and actually, uh, if, if you know the chemistry a little bit, then you can see that, no, these same compounds could be doing lots of different That's things right. in the body it's and interacting in other I mean, ways with the chemistry. And and it, it is, and it's, and it's true with everything, even our food. I mean, you know, a food can bother us for many different reasons and components of that particular food. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to have to be so, you know, blindsided that it, it's only it's only doing this one thing and it's only affecting this one thing. I mean, that's 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 the reason for side effects on medication labels. I mean, exactly, they're all doing something. Um, we when we come back, I, I want to talk more about the diet. I want to talk about calcium. Um, I want to talk about supplementation, and then we're going to have Carlene on in a little bit to talk about actually implementing the diet. Uh, Don't go away. We have Susan Owens. Thank you. 
Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. We had a wonderful experience in our trip to the Sensory Learning Institute, and the main issue to sum everything up is that we went there with a child who was out of control and hyper, who had severe sensory issues and autistic tendencies, and we brought home a child who was vastly different. We brought home a child who plays with me and talks to me and looks in my eyes and tells me he loves me. The goal and focus of the sensory learning program is to enable the central nervous system to better process sensory information by simultaneously stimulating visual, auditory, and vestibular systems with light, sound, and motion. By challenging these three sensory systems to work together and adapt to multi-sensory input, this intervention often improves speech, perception, understanding, social interaction, coordinated movement, and the ability to learn. We invite all parents interested in sensory learning program for a child to complete the confidential assessment on our website at www.sensorylearning.com. The pressures to be thin or ideal go beyond the Hollywood headlines. In fact, those suffering from eating disorders in the U.S. number in the millions, and eating disorders such as anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating are more common than Alzheimer's disease. Eating disorders affect men, women, adolescents, as well as young children. On Understanding Eating Disorders, Dr. Tom Scales, an internist and psychiatrist, uncovers the causes and characteristics of various eating disorders and shares his expertise on current treatment approaches. Expert guests and personal stories from some who have recovered reveal the depth of emotional conflicts of these dangerously obsessive conditions and the resolutions that work. Tune in to Understanding Eating Disorders with Dr. Tom Scales every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Understanding Eating Disorders, the cycle of eating disorders, can be broken. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Betsy Hicks. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program, here's Betsy. We're here with Susan Owen talking about the low oxalate diet, and we've had some good discussions as to where this is coming from and um, how to correct it, specifically on the diet. Now, the diet specifically, as we have mentioned before, is um, needs to be low in... Things such as spinach, Swiss chard, soy, nuts, um, a lot of calcium-rich based foods. Is that right? Yes, because again, plants use it to store calcium. So uh, okay. The, the, so I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> sorry. The very foods that are high calcium are likely to be the ones that are are high oxalate, and if if the calcium is bound to oxalate in the plant. It is not bioavailable, and when we eat it, we don't absorb it. We don't absorb the calcium, and we don't absorb the oxalate. But in the mix, there is soluble oxalate, which is not bound to calcium, and that's the oxalate that hurts us. So This, this is the part that I have the hardest time with, because this is the part where, I mean, I, I know how our bodies need calcium, and mm-hmm. I... I I, I've always, in my training, and knowing that we need our green leafy vegetables because of all, not just the calcium, but the magnesium, the potassium, and the proper combination of them all, and 
the iron and all the other things that we get from that um, have to be better for us in a natural form more than a, more so than a synthetic. So what what is the way to supplement those that nutrition that you'd be lacking if you were on this diet? Well, you have to realize that whatever soluble oxalate you have that's in the diet is going to be binding those things. Okay. So even if you're getting them from other foods, if you're eating high oxalate foods with high soluble oxalate in it, it's going to be binding it and you're not going to absorb it either. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the amazing things that I found from the literature is that 80% of the calcium in our diets normally is not absorbed. I definitely believe that. And, you know, you could look at that and go, oh, it's a problem. But actually, it's not a problem because that 80% of that calcium is really designed to protect us from the bad effects of oxalate. But what about calcium in the form, I mean, I don't mean to get biblical here, but going back to the food being created for us in general, and Mm -hmm. we've taken milk and we've, um, heated it to high temperatures, we've pasteurized it, we've, now we have no longer enzymes to even be able to break it down. Mm-hmm. You know, a cow has four stomachs. How can we digest this pasteurized, no-enzyme milk and expect to absorb that version of calcium in that format? That's, that's part, part of the problem that I have, mm-hmm. understanding, because... And, I, and I'm not saying it's, it's one way or another. I just want to be able to understand this. Well, there have been studies that have compared the effectiveness of uh, the, having calcium that is in milk compared to um, a similar amount of calcium that's not in milk and which one is able better to bind oxalate and to keep you from absorbing it. And actually milk was did a better job than the same amount of calcium. That wasn't by chance funded by the state of Wisconsin, was it? <laughs> I don't know. It might have been. <laughs> I didn't read the fine print. But um, so, but there is something about that calcium that's not, it's not only binding the tight junctions together, but it's also binding to the oxalate that's in the food. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, here again, we go back to these microbes. Right. We're supposed to have this wonderful community of microbes that are in the gut that can actually take care of the oxalate. And maybe if they do that, maybe that frees up a lot of that calcium for us to use. But if our GI flora is um, has been damaged by, you know, overuse of antibiotics, then, you know, we may not be able to absorb that nutrition. So your recommendation is supplement calcium, though, through, throughout the diet. Yes, and there are so many studies that have been done on this. What they found was that you needed to take the calcium on the front end of eating because, you know, number one, if, if you have a leaky gut and the reason you have a leaky gut is that there's not enough calcium there at the tight junctions, then that little bit of calcium before you eat will help to close that that uh, tight junction. And then the other thing is, it'll be there to bind the oxalate that's in your food. And actually, if you have enough calcium, it can bind up a lot of that oxalate so you don't absorb it. So the timing is totally critical. 
Mm-hmm. And if there's studies out there that have been done looking at the benefits of calcium and they weren't um, specifying when you were giving the calcium, then your results, the results would be all over the map depending on whether they gave it at the beginning of the meal, at the end of the meal, between meals. Um, but for the purposes of finding oxalates that are in the food, you need to take it at the front end of the meal. So... I, I'm a person who has a peptide pro- problem with digesting dairy. I, I can't. If I have it, I become foggy very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, is it to say then that not every child on the spectrum, we already know it's not. There's been studies um, that has been done by Cade and Reichelt saying that about 80% of children do well on a casein and a gluten-free diet. Mm-hmm. Um but what does this have to, where does this play into when the low oxalate diet is definitely advocating dairy and dealing with the peptide and the more of the um, neurotransmitter end of this? Well, um, the low oxalate diet was is an established diet that has been used for kidney disease and cystic fibrosis and polycystic kidney disease and very many other conditions for years and years. So they weren't focused on this opiate excess issue. And so when I'm uh, talking about the low oxalate diet, it does not have the feature of being a dairy-free diet. Although if you have autism and you have a problem with these opioid peptides, then you probably need to do low oxalate plus uh, no dairy. Mm -hmm. Or at least until you get the leaky gut problem solved. And once you got the leaky gut problem solved, then the peptides wouldn't be a problem anyway because you wouldn't be absorbing them. So um, this is kind of one of the challenges of the low-oxalate diet is that it, it is, uh, you know, the, the third guy that came in here. We had the GFCF diet and we had SCD, and now we have a low-oxalate diet, and there are a lot of people who are going, it's just too complicated <laughs> I don't want to have to do this. But it, it, people have to also understand that they need to customize. You know, yes. there is no black and white, and there's no, there's no black and white to any of those diets. They're, each child needs their own particular customization, and it's really it's a challenge, but it's definitely up to the parent to figure out exactly where they need to fall on that end. Well, that's true, and there are a lot of people who have gotten, um, you know, on the, low, on the trying low oxalates, list, which is the Yahoo group that I started in September. Um, and I would say maybe even the majority of children with autism who have come on that list um, had been on the SCD diet and maybe did really well for a while and then they crashed. And um, for them, it was likely that once that they started to introduce the higher oxalate foods like pecan, you know, right. the spread, amounts of nuts, right? There's a right. tremendous amount of nuts. But right. That that's you very, know that's very hard. the but diet. That's just, I mean, and that's not just for the oxalate reason as well. I mean, nuts in general, digestively, can be very very hard on the system where leaky gut is prevalent. Mm-hmm. And um, there's lots of reasons that those nuts can, in excess, can cause problems. Plus, they're a high allergen. I mean, they're a high IgG allergen. Yes. As well as IgE. Well, if you have if you have a leaky gut, then um, you know one of the purposes of the leaky gut, one of the reasons that the 
the body has a system for opening up those those junctions is because the GI tract is actually a a huge part of your Im- immune system. They call it the GALT. It's the gastrointestinal um, immune system. Anyway, but um, uh, and they open up those gap junctions in order to allow antigens that are in the GI tract to pass through into the blood so that you then can get an IgG reaction because the immunoglobulin that protects the gut is IgA and it's what protects mucous membranes. Mm -hmm. But then the immunoglobulin that protects the blood is IgG. So if you're having IgG reactions to foods, it is a very... uh, likely thing that the reason you're having that is that you have a leaky gut. And that may actually be a better test than some of the other tests for the leaky gut. Right. That's important. Um, and I also wanted to say something about the, the GFCF diet that um, my daughter and I went on that diet 11 years ago. And when we were there, when when we started it, we had to cook everything by scratch there weren't all these products out there. And as the industry kind of built around the market, um, more and more uh, gluten-free foods started to be made. And what they were making a lot of these products out of is um, soy. <laughs> soy and tapioca is really high oxalate. Um, and so some of the gluten-free foods ended up being high oxalate foods but it wasn't true with the original people who started, you know, using the GFCF diet years ago. So we've got something that's kind of changed over time to be a higher and higher oxalate diet. And the the milk substitutes like almond milk, um, soy milk, um, rice milk, they are all extremely high oxalate. Right. That's obviously used in quite a bit. Interesting. Well, um I want to talk, we, we're going to be having Carlene talk to us, and there's so much more we need to say, but um, what I want Carlene to talk about is the symptoms. Um, for Carlene, are you still there with us? I'm here. Okay, when we get back, if you could let people know maybe just the top ten symptoms of what to look for to know if their child is a candidate for this diet, um, and then we'll talk about how you implement it and give a few websites if that's okay with you. Absolutely. Okay, great. We're here with Susan Owens and Carlene Bain. Don't go away. Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health and Wellness. We had a wonderful experience in our trip to the Sensory Learning Institute, and the main issue to sum everything up is that we went there with a child who was out of control and hyper, who had severe sensory issues and autistic tendencies, and we brought home a child who was vastly different. We brought home a child 
who plays with me and talks to me and looks in my eyes and tells me he loves me. The goal and focus of the sensory learning program is to enable the central nervous system to better process sensory information by simultaneously stimulating visual, auditory, and vestibular systems with light, sound, and motion. By challenging these three sensory systems to work together and adapt to multi-sensory input, this intervention often improves speech, perception, understanding, social interaction, coordinated movement, and the ability to learn. We invite all parents interested in sensory learning program for a child to complete the confidential assessment on our website at www.sensorylearning.com. The Men's Health and Lifestyle Show with Dr. Philip Worthman explores in-depth topics of concern to men of all ages regarding their health and lifestyle in an informative and provocative way. This show is the user's manual for men, a detailed and unedited guide to male physiology. Dr. Worthman, a recognized authority in men's health and male fertility, and his expert guests stimulate informative discussions and debates in a serious yet entertaining way, from explaining how or why the male body works as it does, to dispelling myths and misconceptions about men's health and sexuality. Dr. Worthman covers and uncovers it all. The Men's Health and Lifestyle Show broadcasts each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. The Men's Health and Lifestyle Show, teaching men what they need to know to live healthy, happy, and productive lives. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Betsy Hicks. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Betsy. Hello and welcome back. We're here with Susan Owen. Do you know what I forgot to say at the very beginning of the show? I want to thank Sensory Learning Center. They are our sponsor, and I want to thank them for letting us be, uh, make the show come out to you. So big thanks to them. Um, okay, going back. Carleen, thank you. We, we've kept you in the back, but we, we're going to bring you out right now. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the symptoms that somebody might want to look for um, in uh, possibly being a candidate for this diet? Yes. Uh, when I attended the DAN conference last October and uh, Dr. McCandless went over this list and I immediately thought I have to try this on my son because I realized so many of these behaviors and symptoms applied to him. And I'll go through the list and, and uh, talk about which ones have helped him the most. And number one is urinary problems, including urinary urgency, frequent urination, genital pain, pain after urination, and that is an issue that going low oxalates completely cleared up. He wasn't signing out of class every 20 minutes to go to the bathroom. It was just unbelievable how much that helped him in that area. Uh, Other areas are sudden outbursts of bad behavior or GI or other pain within minutes to within a couple of hours of eating a high oxalate food. Problems with expressive speech is another issue. Changes in function or behavior that follow the use of Miralax or Glycolax. Yeasty behaviors, which sometimes behaviors that we can attribute to being yeast are can actually be contributed to oxalates. Another one is problems with glycine, your dimethylglycine or trimethylglycine, which are supplements that a lot of people uh, in the autism community use for their children. Um, I stopped giving that to my son, and uh, then whenever I try to reintroduce it, it seems his oxalate symptoms tend to get worse again. Uh, another area is constipation or diarrhea. 
unresponsive to other therapy. My son battled chronic diarrhea and since going Loxalates has not had a single bout of diarrhea. So that, that's just been huge. Um, intolerance to sulfur supplements. Uh, he, he has been taking those and he gets his, um, Epsom salt baths too and he has been tolerating those no problem. Um, new problems developing whenever nuts, legumes, or soy are introduced into the diet uh, is another area. And you made up, uh, you brought up a uh, point when we put these kids on the gluten and dairy-free diet, we tend to go high oxalates, which is exactly right. what we did. Right. And uh, so we so we did remove a lot of those high oxalate nuts and legumes. And uh, one thing we didn't mention is chocolate is <laughs> extremely high in oxalates. And before going gluten and dairy-free, you can have milk chocolate, but then when you go gluten and dairy-free, you have to have dark chocolate, which dark chocolate is extremely high in oxalates. So another one is craving high oxalate foods, which my son loves spinach, so we had to cut that out. But that is a a big indicator is uh, children that also crave these high oxalates. I I don't have a lot of patients, Carlene, that crave spinach. I wish I did, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, uh, I don't have a lot of that. I, 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 we don't have a lot of time, and I want people to understand a day in the life of Carlene Banks. I want people to know um, what it is you feed. And the reason I selected you to do this, Carlene, is because um, you do a healthy diet. When I first saw this diet and I heard what people were eating, I was sickened. I was like, how could this be a good diet when they're drinking specific kinds of sodas as opposed to other kinds of sodas? And they were... You know, or they weren't eating any vegetables whatsoever and, and candies and things that, and they thought they were safe because it was low oxalate. But then I met you, and you are a, a proponent of organic foods. You, you introduce a lot of vegetables. You just do the right kinds of vegetables. Yes, and the, the thing with going on the low oxalate diet is it's not like going gluten and dairy free. Where you go gluten and dairy free, you have to avoid all gluten and all cases. Right. It's, it's, it's Black and white. Right, exactly. I mean, you just have to avoid it. Now, going low oxalate is you, you just you can't avoid oxalates. You just have to lower your intake of oxalates. And so you start with removing the highest oxalate foods, and then you, then you remove the medium oxalate foods. And then so for a few weeks, you just try to stay on fruits and vegetables that are in the lowest group, and then you can start introducing some of the medium I still, we stay away from the high ones. You know, we, I don't give my son spinach and he and doesn't. Where, where can you get this? Can you get a list? Is there an, where is the list located, Susan and Carlene, that you can get the list of what's high, medium, and low? Well, there's a, there's a couple of resources. One is, uh, there's a wonderful discussion group moderated by Susan Owens, which is trying low oxalates at Yahoo groups. And, um, uh, Susan can also talk about the Volvar Pain Foundation, which they just came out with the Low Oxalate Cookbook, the second edition, and they have wonderful information in there about the list of foods that are lowest and foods that are highest and supplements that also help being on the diet. Yes, um, that was really the inspiration for our project because uh, a woman had um, been using the diet who had vulvar pain and she just asked the question is it possible the pain that you know is in autism is caused by you know irritation from these oxalates and so that foundation um, has been working on this for about 15 years okay so so where so on 
is is the website? I mean, if they go so that if they go to try, I mean, is there an actual list? That's my big question. Is there an yes. actual list? We have a consolidated list. We we went all over the internet to find every okay. oxalate list we could, and, and we consolidated it, and that's available on our website. And what and what is that website? Uh, well, again, it's it's at the Yahoo group. Okay, so can you say the whole name of it once again? It's called Trying Underline Low Underline Oxalates at yahoogroups.com. And spell oxalate for everybody. O-X-A-L-A-T-E. Okay, so tryingloxalate.com. Not oxalates with an S, just oxalate. Yeah, right. Okay. 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 Um, okay, going back to Carlene, as we only have four more minutes left, can you tell me then what's a typical breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Oh, typical breakfast will be uh, my son loves a hard-boiled egg in the morning, and fruit might be uh, some children cannot tolerate bananas. My son now is tolerating bananas. In the beginning, we stayed away from bananas. Uh, pineapple, which is low is low in oxalates, but some people have difficulty with it because it's high in phenols. So, there, you know, there's always this balancing act because every child is different. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is, that's the problem there is people just need to try to implement it, see what's work, what works for their child. Okay. Uh, then lunch, I end up a lot of times sending him with, uh, you know, it might be some leftover baked chicken from the night before and some cut up pear peeled because uh, the skin on the fruit tends to be higher in oxalates. And uh, then dinner, same thing, might be a roast and we will have, you know, a vegetable that's lower in oxalates, broccoli, steamed broccoli. Uh, So that's... You're not doing doing any of anything related to a grain whatsoever, not even quinoa or... We are now. No, I mean, we do. We'll do... uh, We'll, we'll have, like, white rice noodles because okay. white rice is lower in oxalates than brown rice. But okay. in the beginning, we tried to stay away from that, and then you can slowly start introducing it. And like I said, it's not – you don't avoid them completely. Or if I'm – if he's going to get – if I know he's going to get noodles at dinner, then I make sure he doesn't get a sandwich at lunch with, with a bread that uh, has some tapioca flour in it. Okay. So it's just kind of a balancing act. You just watch the total intake throughout the day and try to keep his oxalate levels uh, lower. Okay. Right. Corn and white rice and wild rice are the grains that are the lowest oxalate. But, you know, corn feeds so much gut bacteria. I mean, that's that's my big gripe with mm-hmm. corn is the, is the gut bacteria piece. And the, the other question is, I mean, when you talk about your typical breakfast and it's so much fruit, I mean, isn't that feeding the yeast? The remarkable thing is that... Um, a lot of the women in the Vulvar Pain Foundation had had chronic candidiasis and for years and years and years. And as soon as they went logo-oxalate, they never had, an, had a yeast problem again. And we're finding that to be repeated in some of our kids. So it may be that what we've been calling yeast was actually oxalate problems. And we were giving probiotics and thinking, oh, we're treating yeast, and maybe what we were doing is helping to get rid of the oxalates. So there's a lot of research that needs to do to to be done to clarify that. That's, uh, thank you, Susan, and thank you, um, Carlene. This has been a very interesting show. It's wonderful to talk to such pleasant people. Um, I'm going to repeat that website one more time, or the Yahoo group one more time, which is try 
low trying trying. Let me sure get it right. I'm sorry. <laughs> I've I've but I've botched it every single time. So why don't you say it one more time? All right, it's trying low oxalates. It um, T R Y I N G underline low um, underline and then oxalates and then at yahoogroups.com. Great. Thank you to both of you um, for being on the show today. We want to close today in reminding everybody to make sure and get your registration in to the Autism One conference set for Memorial Day weekend. It's going to be absolutely fabulous. We have two pre-days on this one. Uh, Wednesday is going to be about family health. Um, and the Thursday is going to be about food. And I will be doing a lot of cooking demonstrations for you on that day. Um, the continuing conference will touch every subject imaginable in the autism world. So please don't forget about Autism One. To go to their website, autismone, that's O-N-E, dot org. Thank you for everyone that joined me today. To Susan Owens, Carling Banks, thank you for listening. Thank you to Sensory Learning Center for being our sponsor. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. The Sensory Learning Center would like to thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Betsy or get more information, visit autismone.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Betsy Hicks.